Amen. While you're having a seat, I hope you can grab your Bible and open them up to Luke chapter 16. Luke 16. Thank you, Josh, for leading us in this season of interim. I really appreciate it. Can we just say thank you to Josh? Thank you, Josh, leading us in our team. We've been in a series called Roblox to Beliefs. This is our last message in this series. Then we'll pick up in the Gospel of Matthew starting next week. But as we looked at this series, it's, it's been a series where there are often questions or maybe even objections to faith. And we've tried to address those one by one. You can't address all of them in one stroke. But we talked about the Bible as being the word of God. We've talked about God being good and allowing suffering for the glory of God, but also for our joy and sanctification. We've, we've talked about um, the reality of the church and why you need the church. And so I'm so grateful David got to talk about that. And, and today we're talking about um, one that often is on the, the edge for so many people. They, they might say it this way. How, how can you believe in a loving God, but also in a literal hell? Everybody wants to go to heaven. Nobody wants to die. Everybody believes in heaven, but everybody thinks they're going there. But nobody wants to believe in hell. And in reality, there's many that would come from a, try to come from a theological perspective to say that the most gracious thing God could do would, one, to be uh, let everybody in, or in turn to just annihilate you out of existence so that you're not going through pain and suffering. But I think it's an important question. I mean, even C.S. Lewis, he, he said it, and I'm paraphrasing here, C.S. Lewis said in Mere Christianity, he said, I, I wish that I could remove the doctrine of hell. I really wish I could, but, but the Bible overwhelmingly affirms it. And we as the church have overwhelmingly received that doctrine as well. I'd love for us to be able to eliminate it out of our Bibles, but I simply cannot because Jesus, in fact, will speak about it and he will see that in our text today. So if you have your Bibles, it'll be in Luke chapter 16, starting in verse 19 through 31, we'll talk about the two great moments or two great places in life after death. If you're there, it helps us to know, will you say a word? There was a rich man, that's key for us, there was a rich man who would dress in purple and fine linen, feasting lavishly every day, but a poor man named Lazarus, covered him with sores, was lying at his gate. He longed to be filled with what fell from the rich man's table, but instead the dogs would come and lick his sores. One day the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried and being in torment in Hades. He looked up and saw Abraham a long way off with Lazarus at his side. Father Abraham, he cried out, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this flame. Son, Abraham said, remember that during your life you received your good things just as Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here while you are in agony. Besides all of this, a great chasm, there it is, has been fixed between us and you. So that those who want to pass over from here to you cannot, neither can those from there cross over to us. Father, he said, then I beg you to send him to my father's house because I, am, I have five brothers to warn them so that they won't also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said. But if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. But he told them, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. 
How can a loving God send anybody to hell? How can a loving God create a chasm between people where there's a heaven of eternal bliss and a, and a place of eternal torment? It's a question that's plagued so many people, but here Jesus will speak directly to this moment. And we really have just two points today, so we'll just even shave off a point. There's two points. The first point is this, the, the main character. There's a main character in our text today. We see it very early on here in verse 19. It's, it's called the rich man. This man is a wealthy man. He has and is of high means. And we know this because, well, Jesus tells us he dresses in purple and it's in fine linen. But not just that, he has a lavish feast of which he eats at on a regular basis. He didn't hide his wealth. He didn't hide it under a bushel. It was well known to others. As one friend said to me a few weeks ago, you simply can't hide money. That's what he said. The reality is this man was a very wealthy man. He was rich. And it's likely that he found his identity in his wealth. All of his life had been defined about the accumulation of things, the accumulation of income, bigging, building up his bank account. You might even say he made Scrooge McDuck look poor. This man is defined by his wealth. It says he was a rich man. Now we also know that as Jesus is speaking here, he's not just talking to just some random group of people. We, we see very clearly up into verse 14 that he's speaking to religious people who were also lovers of money. Do you see it in verse 14? Look at verse 14 with me. It says the Pharisees who were, there it is in your text, lovers of money. This means that this man is part of this group or this group is associated with this man. So when Jesus says in verse 19, there's a rich man, he's, he's giving a story about about particularly this group of individuals that Jesus is speaking to, the Pharisees. We then learn that this man wasn't just a rich man, he was also a religious man. Now you might think, hey, a religious person, that would be somebody that we would look up to, that we would value their opinion, that we would be encouraged by their presence, that we would want to be near them. They're, they're good people. But the Bible will often indicate those that are the most religious, outwardly religious, are often the ones who are most cold to the things of God. They've learned to speak the language of religiosity. They've learned to, to play the game and to be able to slip in and kind of give a display that they're followers of Jesus because they've learned the vocabulary of a follower of Jesus. But when you begin to really inspect their life, there's nothing in them that truly desires to follow Jesus. They have this rich man who was religious, this rich man who was among the group of the Pharisees. Now, he said, well, well, how do you know that he was among the group of the Pharisees? Well, look at verse 24, because verse 24, something interesting happens in what he does when he's in his torment and he looks up into the heavens. He, he says, Father Abraham, he calls out. He doesn't call out to God. He doesn't call out to the creator of the universe. He, cre he calls out to the only one that he knew, all he knew was Father Abraham. You remember Father Abraham? He had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. And I wanted, I'm not going to sing it. Don't worry. But this is an indication from Jesus that when this man is thinking about who can rescue me, he's not looking to God. He's looking to his tradition. He's not looking to God alone. He's looking to the religion system of which he had bought into to save him. 
Here you have a rich man who is dressed in fine linen. He was well known. He was also a religious person. Who knows what he had done. Maybe he had walked the aisle, been baptized maybe a couple of times just to make sure. He was a giver. He was attending a Sunday school group. He was active in the local synagogue. But his whole faith was tied up in the synagogue and that system and not in the Savior. There's a difference. This man was known. This man was known for being rich and he's known for being religious. But do you notice something else about this man, this main character? He has no name. Now, it was Timothy Keller who pointed this out to me, and you kind of read it. Maybe you just read it like I did, and you read right through and don't even recognize that. But notice how there's a name for Lazarus, but there's not a name for this rich man. Do you find that interesting? I find it interesting. Now, this isn't the same Lazarus that we dealt with a few weeks ago who was to come out of the tomb and, and, and kin to Mary and Martha and beloved by Jesus. This is a different Lazarus. But notice that Lazarus, the poor man who was a beggar at the gates of this man's house, he has a name. But the, the rich man who you would think would be well known and, and everybody would laud his, his death and oh, we are so going to miss that guy so much. He has no name. Timothy Keller continues on to say that the reality is that, that because this man has no name, it's a subtle hint that not only did he not have a name, he had no relationship with God. Remember, one of the most terrifying passages in all the Bible is when the man or woman stands before Jesus and says, I did all these things for you. And he looks at them and he says, I never knew you. He has no name. He has money. He has the right religious system. But he has no relationship with God the Father. He thinks Abraham is the Father. Now, this can happen for you and for me too, can it not? Finding ourselves bought into this financial success, although I'm not against that, and are buying into even finding all the right positions to be in at a church, thinking that that will cover you in the multitude of your sins. We all find ourselves in these moments of, of life. It, it could be just this, uh, this propensity towards unhappiness. We think in, that, that we would be just happier if we just had a change of circumstances. We think if, if I could just get married, I'll be happy. <laughs> we think if I just have kids, if I just have more kids, they'll be forced to love me. Yeah, let me know how that works out for you. We think if I just have a job change or a location change or a house change or a car change, anything that I can garner up, that will, if I can change my circumstances, I'll no longer be unhappy. But you soon realize that one thing that you got, you thinking that it would satisfy all those things, ends up not satisfying you one bit. In fact, it often makes you all the more unhappier because you had put your hope and trust in that which only Christ himself can satisfy. Some of us are not prone to unhappiness, but maybe we're prone to jealousy. Jealousy in that we see somebody else succeeding and we want that. How come, God, they're successful and I'm not? And success can come in a variety of patterns. Success could be wealth. It could be status. It could be position. It could be ranking. It could be all kinds of things. But you're jealous. For others, it's the prone to, to addiction, and we all like to say, I'm not addicted. Okay. Just think for a second 
You, you begin to smell the aroma of that baked bread, and you're trying to get away from bread, but that aroma is filling the, the air in the room. You, you gotta have it. You can play that game. There's this new game going around, and I refuse. I'm, I'm a dissenter. I'm not gonna go into it, but it's called Wordle, and everybody has to post it every day, their status. Don't tell anybody, but I've muted that word from my Twitter this idea of addicted, I, I gotta play, I'm just gonna play just a few minutes and I play a few minutes and a few minutes becomes 15, 15 becomes 30, 30 becomes, I'm not addicted. But it happens to all of us. It could be food, it could be a game, it could be porn, it could be all kinds of different things in life. It could be trying to have friends, it could be the affections of other people. We're addicted to these things and all of that is just the, the embers of hell rising up into our souls. See, hell existed in this man long before he ever went to hell. You see, hell is this place where we would describe it as fire and darkness. Fire and darkness. I, whenever we go camping, Abby is designated fire starter. I, I'm not kidding. I've gone to start a fire, and 30 minutes later, we have nothing. This is the story of my life. But she went to the electrician camp, and so she's able to start a fire, and so she starts the fire. And I've never sat around a fire, based, you know, just basking in her ability to start a fire, and sat there, and the fire say to us, okay, I've had enough wood, thank you very much. I'm doing just fine. See, a fire has an insatiable desire naturally to consume everything around it. This is why whenever a fire starts, like in Bastrop just recently and even a few years ago, but even in California, we, we realize that it's a dangerous situation. Or, or maybe we have a, a farm or a ranch and when there's a grass fire, we become very concerned because fire never just comes to a place in its existence saying, I'm good, thanks. It has to be extinguished for it to go out. And so for many of us, the fire that's within us, the fires of hell are burning for these things, whether it be unhappiness or jealousy or addiction. But hell is also described throughout the Bible as darkness. Darkness. God is light and in him there is no darkness. That's what 1 John tells us. So you could even say that hell is the location of which there is not God. God is not there. I was doing some reading about this, trying to figure out how we could illustrate darkness to us. And I don't, I don't know if you knew this, but I looked it up on Google, and Google never lies. But when you look at the sun, you're actually looking into the past. Do you know that? When you look at the sun, I'm not encouraging you to go outside and just stare. Kids, don't do that. Please, I don't want that email this week. But if you look at the sun, just for a moment, you're actually looking into the past because the earth and the sun are 93 million miles away. And because of that, because the sun is a star, it, it has this beam of light that comes, but it comes to us eight minutes and 13 seconds after it's already been sent. So what we look at with the sun, it's not in the moment, it's actually in the past. And so if the sun were to die, we wouldn't know it for eight minutes and 13 seconds. For this rich man, there was darkness in his life, but he didn't know it yet. And when he gets to that pit in the Hades, he's sitting there and he's looking in darkness, looking up to go, where is God? All I see is Father Abraham and Lazarus is next to him. 
What's amazing about this description is that it's seeing that Abraham and Lazarus, are, they're reclining or sitting at a, a table. They're being comforted in this moment. What's so amazing about this moment is that in Jewish tradition, a banqueting table was this moment of celebration and of exhale and of comfort. We even read in, when Jesus is at the table with his disciples that, that John the Beloved would lean his head onto, onto the chest of, of Jesus and, and he was his beloved. What's so fascinating about this moment, though, is that this man is so clear that he does not have a relationship with the Lord that even in his torment, he looks up into heaven and demands that Lazarus serve him. You see that where he says in the verse 24, would you have, would you have Lazarus dip his finger into cool water and touch? Serve me. Even in his torment, he's demanding others to serve him. But also not just to serve him, but to deliver his mail. In the next verse, he says, would you, would you have, or the next few verses, he says, would you have, verse 27, send Lazarus to my father's house. See, even in his heart is so far from the Lord that, that he not only is demanding Lazarus to serve him, he's wanting Lazarus to go and do his business. This man did not have a relationship with God. This man had lived a life for himself. We know this man did not know the Lord because even in the verse 19 and 20 and 21, Lazarus is waiting just for some food from the crumbs of the table of this man and he refused to give it. See, evidence that you don't have a relationship with the Lord is that you have no compassion for others. I'm not saying it's the only evidence, but when you look at other people and you don't have compassion for them when they're in their need, it might be a sign that you don't understand the gospel. You say, how is that a gospel issue? Because if you understand the gospel, you realize that you were a person in need and you needed somebody to rescue you. And when you came to that realization, you understand that God was the one who was calling you to himself who meets that need that you have in your own life and heart. When you understand the gospel, you understand that God is the one who had compassion on you, who sent his son to die in your place. And then because you understand that you've been a recipient of compassion of the Lord and his grace, you can't help but do that to and for other people. But we find in verse 21 that he had no desire to give that stuff to anybody else. He just consumed, 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 and consumed, never thinking about the other. But then as we see in verses 24 and 27, he's demanding compassion from other people. A clear sign you don't have a relationship with the Lord is not just that you don't give compassion to others, but you're demanding compassion from others for you. It's the same way when you discipline a child for doing something they shouldn't do. And they say, I'm sorry. And you go, I know you're sorry. And you're forgiven, but there are consequences to your decision. But I said I was sorry. I know you said you were sorry. I know you regret doing it, but there are consequences. In the same way, this man wanted to give no compassion to others, but wanted compassion from others for himself. The embers of hell were burning in his soul long before he ever entered in to torment. And that leads to the main issue, really. You have the main character, but you have this main issue. 
The main issue is simply that there is a great divide. The main issue is that you do have to choose what you will do with this word. The, the main issue is that there is a heaven and there is a hell. And you, this day, have to choose, do I want to live with God or live without God? Do I want to give my life to serving him and following him? Or do I want to give my life to serve myself and my own desires? We learn that it's called the great chasm in verse 26. A great chasm has been fixed between us and you is what Abraham says. This, friend, is the main issue. Do you have compassion for others? Are you demanding compassion from others? The reality is the problem for this type of thinking that you deserve something or that you, you think that, well, hell was an Old Testament idea and God matured in Jesus and Jesus loves everybody. That's what the Bible says, for God loves the whole world. So that means he loves everybody and he's gonna bring everybody because that's just what Jesus would do. The story of the rich man and Lazarus tells us there's two options, to live with God and live without God. To live without God is to say, I don't want authority. I want to do it my way. I want to live the way I want to live. I want to do the things I want to do. I just want to be my own God. C.S. Lewis, C.S. Lewis says this in the book, The Problem of Pain. In the long run, the answer to all those who object the doctrine of hell is this question. What are you asking God to do? To wipe out their past sins and at all costs to give them a fresh start, smoothing every difficulty and offering every miraculous help, but he has done so on Calvary. To forgive them, they will not be forgiven. To leave them alone, alas, I'm afraid, that is what he does. In the end, there are two kinds of people. This is the main issue. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, thy will will be done. See, God does not delight to send anybody to hell. We learn this in even 1 Timothy 2, 4, that God desires all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of him. To acknowledge God and to want God in your life and say, I don't want to live for anything else. I don't want to live for these temporary things. I want to give my life to him and say, your will be done. But there's another sense that God does send people to hell. In one sense, God doesn't send people to hell. In another sense, God does send people to hell because his ways are right and true. And you might say, that, well, that's just not fair. Just because somebody didn't use the, the code language to get into heaven or, or join that Christian club that meets every Sunday, do you mean God's just gonna not let them in? Well, there's a real sense that as Romans 9, 9 tells us that we are but clay in the hands of the potter and how dare we tell God what he can and cannot do? This is how desperate this moment is for you in this room if you've never trusted in Christ as Lord and Savior. This is how desperate this moment is for you if you have loved ones who are not following after the Lord. This is how desperate it is, is, this is for us at Rock Hill. How many people can come in and out without ever actually meeting anybody or being confronted with the truth of what is your story and how has God saved and rescued you? And when we begin to compare it all, we, we will one day sit in heaven with the Lord. And, and I used to say it was a VHS, and then I would say it's the Blu-ray. But now I'm saying it's like that goggles that people wear with the screen too close to their eyes. Because when I was a kid, mom said you're too close to the TV. Now we put it right here. But there's going to be this moment where we're seeing that. And over and over we're going to realize God has been way more merciful to us than we ever deserved.
That Jesus Christ would come and go to a cross that was likely borrowed. It had the remaining feces and blood and sweat and tears and urine all over that thing. And he's standing there on that cross, nailed to it. And in that moment, the wrath of God is being poured out. All of hell is being poured out on Jesus. And he looks up into the heavens and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he's doing that to show you the extent of his love. And when you reject it, you're saying, I want to be my own God. I want to do it my own way. And he will look at you one day if you continue down that trajectory and he'll say, your will be The worst part in all of that with Jesus was the separation from the Father. There's a man who was teaching a Sunday school class. And he asked his students, he said, which would you rather be, boys? The rich man or Lazarus? Think about it, boys. Which one would you rather be? And a little boy raised his hand and he said, I'd like to be the rich man while living and Lazarus when I die. Now if it was that simple, that's what we would do. But we know it's not. In life, you have to come to a place where you decide his will be done or my will be, do, be done. And when you pray that, you might think, oh, no, 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 I, I know what's best for me. You, you don't know what's best. You say, I'll, I'll figure it out. I'll, I'll push it. I'll kick the can down the road. And down the road, I'll figure that stuff out. But I'm telling you, a day is coming. You have to choose you this day who you will serve. And the invitation of the Lord is to say, he says, Come. Come, all of you who are weary. Come and give your life to follow me. You want happiness. You won't find it in all these things. I, I will provide joy that lasts eternal. You want the, the comparison game to end? Know that all of us are but beggars in the presence of the Lord. and He loves us and cares for us and, and has saved us. Your addiction's overwhelming you and you don't know where to turn. The Lord calls and he says, I will heal you of those you have to come to a place where you admit and agree with God that you have sinned. You have to come to a place where you say, I can't save myself. I have to believe that only through Jesus I can be saved. It's not through doing better. It's not through trying harder. It's not through getting my life in order or get my act together or getting my calendar organized and then I'll figure it out. No, no. You have to say, only through Jesus can I be saved. Only through that cross am I allowed to come into the presence of the Lord. And you have to confess him. Say, I, he is the Lord. He is ruler of my life. That doesn't mean that now every time that you turn around, everything's going to just be perfect. But you have to say, he's the one that I'm living for. What about you today? There's two ways to live. His will be done or my will be done. You have to choose. Let's pray. Father, we come and Lord, we ask that as we contemplate this moment there are those in this room that are really struggling with what to do with this word. Lord, you're faithful. You're always so good to us. But God, I'm asking that even in this moment, you would allow us to get honest about where we have been.
There are those who deny heaven, they deny hell, but Lord, your word is clear that there will be a day where each one of us will be confronted. Father, we're asking that if there are those in this room who are unsure about where they stand when it comes to eternity, that Father, today, by the power of your spirit, they would come under conviction and they would respond to your call. But Father, we also know there may be some in this room that they have loved ones that they care about. Maybe, maybe they need to come to the altar and just say, Lord, I'm lifting them up to you. I don't know how to communicate it. I don't know what to say, but God, I'm asking that you would give me the words to say it. See, a sermon like this, Father, is not, is not to make us arrogant and proud about where our standing is, but to make us humbled at your mercy, thankful for your kindness, overwhelmed by your gentleness. And so, Lord, today we want to lay these things before you, receive the word you've given us, and obey what you've told us to do. Lord, we love you and thank you for this in Christ's name.